Welcome to Cracking and Fracking with your host, me, Thomas Waters. Our podcast will tackle credit trends, ratings and outlooks in the oil and gas and chemical space, as well as insightful analysis on industry trends and market dynamics. Hello again, everyone, and thanks for listening to another edition of Cracking and Fracking. On our last podcast, I mentioned uh, to stay tuned for a podcast with Mike Grandi, who was our sector lead uh, for the U.S. refining and midstream. Now, Mike was part of our recent road trip with energy investors, but unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, we, we couldn't squeeze him in on our last uh, podcast. So the topic today uh, will be similar to the last one, and we'll be focusing on the credits that were most asked about by investors, um, particularly when it pertains to crossover credits. So, Mike, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Mike, there's no doubt the macro environment has been incredibly supportive of credit quality all throughout the energy spectrum. Maybe can you talk a little about maybe the midstream and refining spaces and you know what our outlook is for the industry and what, what this means for credit quality? Sure, Tom. I'll, I'll start with midstream first. Uh, midstream uh, companies and the industry as a whole was pretty resilient throughout uh, the pandemic the last few years, even though there was some, uh, I guess, modest negative effects given the, the demand decline and the price decline. For the most part, ratings were pretty resilient. Um, some of the, the, the high yield names were were deep spec grade were, were downgraded, but for the most part, uh, investment grade and kind of the higher uh, speculative grade ratings um, held up pretty well. Um, now, now that we're we're kind of on the other side of the pandemic, and and given what's happening throughout the world with geopolitical situations and prices, and things are things are humming along pretty pretty well. Uh, companies have are flush with cash. They're using excess cash flow to continue to strengthen balance sheets and repay some debt. Uh, they're also using the cash flow to increase distributions and dividends again, and and using it for share buybacks and some discrete acquisitions. So so things are good there. On the refining side, things have never been better. Um, much like oil and gas, uh, refining is benefiting from this strong environment, price environment. Refining margins are at historic highs and you know never seen before refining margins. Some refiners have reported a second quarter cash flow that is almost greater than you know a typical mid-cycle full year um, cash flow, so it's 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 unprecedented. And again, they're using the cash flow to pay back debt that they borrowed during the pandemic, which really you know was used as an insurance policy and extra liquidity. And they're also rewarding shareholders, um, and at the same time keeping a, a significant amount of cash uh, uh, on the balance sheet like refiners typically do. So, so ratings have uh, you know rebounded for refining, particularly on the high yield space. We didn't take any negative um, rating actions, I, say, I should say downgrades for uh, the investment grade North American refiners, but everything is back to stable um, versus I think the, the whole sector was negative. Great. Thanks, Mike. And Mike, we know there's such a huge demand right now for LNG, um, as you mentioned, especially from Europe with the Russian-Ukraine situation. Um, we, there's new capacity being built in the U.S. Uh, over the next several years. Um, do we need more uh, natural gas takeout capacity in the U.S.? We do, uh, but 
I, I think because it's going to take several years for some of these facilities to be built out, I, I would say that you're not going to see a significant bump in LNG capacity until 2025, 2026. Um, new capacity, the, the existing um, operators could add some trains, but again, that, that's going to come on gradually and won't be enough to kind of make up the difference, uh, particularly in Europe and maybe the rest of the world. The takeaway capacity, I would say, particularly in the Permian, um, we we, sh we should see another pipe, natural gas pipe, being built to kind of move Permian gas eastward to the Gulf. Uh, I've heard discussions that there's probably a second pipe that needs to be built, but that that's a little bit further, you know, down the road and is not um, by any uh, by any means uh, definitive yet. But we should see a pipe. Uh, I would think another pipe fairly soon, if not, you know, announced this year, maybe even next year uh, through a consortium of, of different uh, strategic sponsors and maybe maybe some financial sponsors. And uh, the existing infrastructure is, is continuing to expand, you know, pipelines that are going to the Gulf that are feeding these, uh, these facilities would, would continue to have, you know, discrete projects built. So, so yes. But but nothing nothing really greenfield except the maybe a permeant pipe. All right, maybe let's turn the discussion over to, to uh, individual credits. All right, um, since you just talked about LNG, maybe we'll start with Chenier and its a uh, sub subsidiary CQP. Now now back in February, we raised them uh, both to a W plus with a positive outlook. Uh, maybe talk about the rating action and what that positive outlook is looking for before it can get to investment grade. Sure. So, uh, as you pointed out, we we recently uh, put them on positive. They're 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 at the crossover stage. Um, that was mainly driven by the fact that um, even pre kind of the Ukraine Russia situation, uh, Chenier was on target to kind of achieve metrics, you know, for an upgrade to to low investment grade, which is basically having debt to EBITDA below four and a half times on a consolidated basis. And, and when I say consolidated, we're, we're including all the projects, Sabine and Corpus, and their ownership interest in the project financings and the debt and cash flows there as well. So C And CQP is also included in that consolidation, and they're, they're, those ratings are linked. Um, given what's been happening more recently with kind of world markets and then the, the demand and prices for, for natural gas and, and LNG in particular, uh, Chenier is probably going to far exceed our initial base case expectations. So really what we need to see is probably go back to the table to kind of decide exactly where, they, um, where they're going to kind of come out in terms of a, a financial profile, not only this year, but into 2023 and beyond when, when things moderate. So we can, you know, determine the, the right course of action. So it's, it's, I would say it's just a matter of a little time. And, and they're also doing some balance sheet management and capital allocation strategies, which um, we need to flush out a little bit, which is not a, uh, a negative. It's just kind of how we're going to work that into our overall assessment. Great, Mike. Thank you. Let's move to uh, DCP Midstream. Uh, revise that outlook to positive uh, last May. Same question. Maybe talk about the action and what we need to see for it to cross into uh, investment grade. Sure, Tom. So DCP, one, one kind of word of, not warning, but one word of clarification is DCP gets a notch of uplift because of their a strategic link to Phillips 66. Phillips 66 is a 50% owner along with Enbridge. 
And the double B plus positive kind of reflects that notch. So that's to say that the notch notwithstanding, DCP is far um, outperforming our base case forecast as well, given where prices are. They are they do have exposure um, to NGL and natural gas prices. So that you know they're long, long both those commodities and and that's playing uh, well into their hands uh, in terms of stronger EBITDA generation um, and volumes are also up. Um, not only that, but they're also paying down uh, additional debt maturities. So so when you combine all that, they're they're probably going to be well below four times and maybe closer to, to three times debt to EBITDA, which is, uh, again, far exceeding our expectations and, and why we put them on positive um, earlier this year. So um, as long as that kind of performance continues, I, I would think that they're uh, you know, an upgrade is probably uh, in the near future for DCP. All right, Mike. Uh, what about DT midstream, W plus stable? I um, I would assume you go to a positive outlook first before investment grade. Uh, so what you know, what would you need to see for that outlook revision? Yeah, so this one's a little bit more nuanced. Um, DT midstream is a newer rating for us. It was spun off um, from a, from a utility, um, and then it was combined with a with a um, I guess Indigo and and a couple of other um, kind of acquisitions along the way. Um, and at the time when we rated that rated at Indigo was was their main counterparty, which I I guess now is South Southwestern, um, and and though the counterparty credit has improved significantly for DT Midstream, which is is a factor, but it's not kind of linked to a, a rating upgrade or downgrade uh, explicitly. So so that's that has some positive headwinds for DT. Um, the problem I would say. Um, in, in kind of going to a positive in the near term is that when we look at DT midstream compared to some of the other double B pluses and even the triple B minuses, um, it's a little bit smaller and, and more um, limited in scale and, and geographic diversity than some of the um, players like DCP, like um, Kinetic, like Targa, which was just up, upgraded. So I, I think we want to see a little bit more growth in terms of size and scale and maybe some some diversity uh, and and a little bit more of a track record to be to be honest since it's a newer rating um, before we would kind of consider say a positive outlook so I think it's more time on this one and 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 maybe some more uh, improvement on the on the business side before we we make an ultimate decision okay um, Mike. Hess midstream. Uh, why not an investment grade rating? I mean, as parents, triple B minus. Right. So um, that that was a consideration when we when we rated Hess initially. Um, the approach we've typically taken for um, midstream subsidiaries, not always, but for the most part, when they are uh, monetized by um, EMP companies or, for that matter, even refiners, um, is that we we haven't really called these what we would consider a core designation which would equate the ratings to the to the parent um, partially because they are monetizing the assets in in some shape or form so there's some public ownership and even though they're retaining control we do view it as a, a strategically important asset to Hess so it's it's 
basically one notch below, mainly because of their, I would say their limited scale, like they're really just a Bakken focused midstream provider. Um, their financials are very strong compared to their peers. You know, they have leverage below two, three times, and they've always maintained it below three times. But we, we did not feel that the ratings should be equated mainly because of uh, the kind of limited asset footprint for Hess. Um, and we didn't, we just didn't equate the ratings at this, uh, at that juncture. Thanks, Mike. Mike, I got one last one for you. Um, Nlink, W plus table. What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah. So Nlink, um, we, we actually analytically view it a little bit differently than maybe some market participants know. Um, Nlink has a, a, a number of preferred uh, offerings, which uh, one of which gets 50% debt to equity treatment, one of which is um, gets 100% debt treatment, given the limited amount of holders of the security uh, for the most part. And um, that kind of adds almost a turn of leverage to Nlink versus what, say, a bank covenant would, would indicate. So their leverage is still much higher than a lot of their gathering and processing peers that are at the same rating and even at the triple B minus level, they're really still about five times debt to EBITDA. And as you know, even though they're chipping away at it, it's going to take quite a bit of time to kind of delever this company. They're not uh, in significant growth areas. They're mainly a mid-continent gathering and processing company with some exposure to kind of the Louisiana Gulf area and, you know, East Texas area as well. So um, while there, there are areas that are, are strong in the current environment, they're typically not, um, you know, comparable to say a Permian or a Bakken or even a Marcellus. So it's just a little bit harder for them to, to kind of grow out of their kind of higher leverage. So I would say that it, it would take some time for us to get comfortable to go back to investment grade with, uh, with Nlink. Mike, thanks for everything. And thanks for joining today. I thought your comments were, were excellent and really insightful. Uh, this concludes another edition of Cracking and Fracking. Until next time. If you have any comments or thoughts on today's topics or future topics that you would like to learn more about, send me an email to thomas.waters at spglobal.com. Thanks for listening to Cracking and Fracking, our U.S. corporate ratings podcast. I'm Tom Waters. See you next time.